This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We need to have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity to gather together to study your word and to learn how to think biblically. Father, we thank you for this nation that we have, for the leaders that we have, for our president, for the leaders in Congress, those in uh, both uh, elected office and appointed office. We pray that you would guide and direct them as they lead this nation. Father, we pray that you would continue to restrain the forces of evil that seek to dominate this country and to rip it away from its Judeo-Christian roots. Uh, That path is the path of self-destruction. Father, we pray that you would continue to challenge believers to take a stand for the truth. We pray that there would continue to be uh, clear teaching from pulpits in this nation regarding biblical absolutes and that you would continue to protect and preserve our freedoms. Father, we know that our security is not based on our military forces or on our internal security and police forces, but we pray that you would guide and direct them as they seek to uh, keep us from being attacked or victims of another act of terrorism. Father, we know that ultimately it is your protection that provides security for this nation. Now, Father, as we continue our study of your word and how to grow and live as a believer, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study, that we may be able to utilize your word in a more consistent and effective manner. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In our study of Third John, third, we've noted that John is emphasizing the principle of walking by means of the truth. Jesus Christ, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. When we join these verses together, we realize that walking by means of the truth is the same as saying walk by means of the word. That for a believer in the church age, we are to walk by faith and not by sight. Walking by means of faith means that when the Word of God is more real to you than your experience, 
When the Word of God is more real to you than your circumstances, when the Word of God is more real to you than your emotions, uh, your background, what your friends say, what your family says, when the Word of God is more real to you than anything else in life, that is when we are walking by faith. The walk by faith is summarized in our terminology as the faith rest drill. And the term faith rest drill indicates uh, two aspects that are not always evident when we talk about the faith rest drill. And the first is that there is an active sense to the faith rest drill. And second, there is a passive sense to the faith rest drill. The active sense is brought out in that last phrase, drill. That engages your volition. That means you have to decide to do something. Whatever the mandate of that particular verse might be, you have to do it. If the uh, Bible says that, that um, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication make your request known unto God, then that means that what you have to do to execute the faith rest drill in that particular passage has to do with prayer. And it also has to do with having an attitude of gratitude. So those are two things that you must decide to do. That engages the volition. That is not legalism. Every now and then, and I just chuckle at this, people just want to... The the depravity of the human soul is such that we just love to try to latch on to rationalizations to give us some excuse for not obeying the Word of God. And uh, we always run into this. There are folks that emphasize grace. Grace means you don't have to do anything. That's right. It means you don't have to do anything. doesn't mean you don't do anything. There's a big difference because the mandates, the imperatives of the New Testament tell us what we are to think and what we are to do. And it doesn't mean that by doing those things that we gain God's approval. That's what legalism is. Legalism says you have to do this, and you have to do that, you have to go to church, you have to pray so many times a day, you have to uh, memorize so many verses and everything in order to guarantee that you have some kind of relationship with God and get God's favor. There's a big difference between doing something to get God's favor and doing something because, well, if you don't do it, you're just going to get disciplined by God. You're going to go through a lot of uh, uh, chastisement and divine discipline, and you're not going to mature. I mean, if you don't if you don't read the Bible, you don't go to Bible class, you don't learn the Word, you're not, and you don't apply the Word, you're not going to mature. And if you don't mature, God's not going to distribute blessings to you. Instead, He's going to, uh, out of the same grace that would distribute the blessings to you, He's going to uh, discipline you. So saying that there are things that we need to do is only legalism in the mind of somebody who doesn't have the first clue as to what grace is all about. It's usually the first sign of somebody who is an antinomian, who doesn't want to do anything except just go on an intellectual trip and uh, impress everybody with how much knowledge they have. And it has nothing to do with somebody who uh, grasps the concept of grace. They need to go back to kindergarten. I don't care how long they've been sitting under doctrine. So there's an active sense to do something. Pray without ceasing. That means that you need to pray. Now, God doesn't say how many times, but He mandates prayer. That's not legalism. It would be legalism if you said, okay, you have to 
quantify that. You have to pray at least once a day. You need to do it in the morning. You need to do it before the sun comes up. And if you don't do it, well, you're just going to uh, not not uh, gain any of God's favor. Well, you may miss out on some blessings, but you're not going to lose your salvation or your spiritual life if you don't pray. But it will have an impact. The passive sense is that as you do whatever it is that the Word says to do, you are then going to uh, wait on the Lord. You're going to relax in God's provision. If God says that I am to pray uh, with an attitude of thanksgiving, and uh, do that, then instead of that, I'm not going to worry, I'm not going to be anxious, then I can relax because I know that I am letting God take care of the problem. So there's an active sense to faith and a passive sense, and we have to understand the distinction. Now, when we break down the faith rest drill, there are three steps that comprise the totality of the faith rest drill. The first is that we have to mix faith, our trust, with a promise. Now, this is important because faith for the believer, for the biblically operational believer, is not faith in faith. It's not just believing. Everybody believes. Every Buddhist, every Hindu, every Mormon, every Jehovah's Witness believes something. People who are into the mind science cults, like Christian science and the New Age movement, believe that faith somehow is a power. And if you can just tap into the power of faith, then all kinds of things are going to happen. Well, that's faith in faith. The power of faith becomes the object of faith. Somehow you get wrapped up in a tight little circle there, and you just run around chasing your tail, frankly. So you mix faith, though, for the believer. You mix faith with a promise. That means you have to know the promises of God. There has to be something in your soul that the Holy Spirit is going to bring into focus during those times of adversity, times of pressure, times of crisis, that you can get your mental fingers around and grab hold of it. And this is why it's important to memorize Scripture. Once again, memorizing Scripture is not legalism. Memorizing Scripture gives you the tools to use to function in the faith rest drill. It is disciplining your mind to think about particular Scriptures. What the Old Testament calls meditating on the Word. The New Testament talks about thinking on these things. It's focusing on on um, learning. Trouble is, it engages your engages a little mental uh, perspiration. And people have to work and concentrate and think. And since a lot of people don't want to do that, it's much easier to say, oh, he's talking about memorizing Scripture. He's a legalist. Well, there are people out there who think that you have to memorize 50 verses a year and you have uh, certain other programs of Scripture memory that come across very legalistic. But the point is, if you don't have ammo, when you get in the battle, if you've got a couple of... of, um, couple of clips for your M16 or a couple of magazines for your M16 that do not have any rounds in them, then when the enemy ambushes you, then you don't have anything to return fire with. And notice how Jesus handled Satan in the temptation in the wilderness in Luke 4. He quoted Scripture. Now, if Jesus is laying down the pattern 
for using problem-solving device of faith rest drill in that situation. And Paul also refers to that when he speaks about taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the word translated word in Ephesians 6 is the word rhema, not lagos. Now here's the difference between rhema and lagos. Lagos has to do with reason or rationale or a, a word in and of itself. Whereas rhema has to do with the spoken word and what and the applied word. So when Paul uses the word of God and equates that to the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6, he's not talking about the word in principle. That would be logos. But he's talking about the fact that the believer is utilizing the word itself, the specific promises and statements and clauses of Scripture in his thinking when he is handling certain problems, pressures, and adversity. So if you want to go out and engage in the angelic conflict and and fire blanks or have empty magazines and nothing there except a lot of abstract principles, well, that's fine, and you will be a failure in the Christian life because you don't have any content. You've got to have, there's got to be something in your soul for the Holy Spirit to utilize besides just a lot of abstract reasoning. And this is clearly illustrated, as I've stated, by numerous people in Scripture who quote Scripture. And that is the example. And unless you want to call Paul a legalist and Jesus a legalist and Daniel a legalist, then you better figure out what legalism is and quit trying to use uh, legalism as just uh, the claim of legalism as some way to avoid responsibility and mental sweat. And that's what most people do. They just don't want to be bothered with having to, to discipline themselves to do anything because so they call it legalism and rationalize it. But first step in the in the faith rest drill is to mix faith with a promise. You have to know certain promises. I'm not saying you have to have 150 promises or 200 promises or, or whatever, but you have to have some promises. You have to know basic promises, categorize them, and know what they refer to. The second step is to think through the doctrinal rationales that are embedded in that promise. And that's really what we are looking at here in this study, is showing you how to look at a promise, read the context around the promise so that you can understand the rationale that is embedded in that promise. And this takes time. I mean, there are some crises we go through, we just claim a promise and we just move right on through. There are other things that happen in our lives that seem to shake us to the very core of our living. That's when God the Holy Spirit is really working in our life. It's an opportunity for great growth as that testing is going to be used to increase our momentum towards spiritual maturity. And we just claim that promise every five seconds. We just Sometimes it seems like we're uh, just running in place because it's such an intense test. So we have to stop and think through, okay, what undergirds this promise? What are the rationales here? And we looked last time, we saw that one of the rationales has to do with the essence of God. And we'll develop that and see that a little more uh, this morning. The essence of God in in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, 20, starting in about 28 down to uh, 31. 
And then as you think that through in your own mind, you think about that promise and you, you reflect on it and you think about, okay, what undergirds this? Well, what undergirds the promise that those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength is the fact that God is a God who isn't weary. God is a God who has complete understanding. We go back to the, to the omniscience of God and the omnipotence of God and that, uh, God is in control of history and therefore, uh, I ex- can exchange my strength for his strength. And we come to a certain conclusion. And the conclusion isn't simply a statement of that proposition. Somehow it's easy to think that, okay, we, we think it through. We come to the conclusion God's in control. Two seconds later, we're back in control, trying to control. We're worrying. We have anxiety. We're starting to operate on fear and worry. And what's happened? That conclusion was just a fleeting academic perception, but it didn't undergird the thinking of our soul. So we have to go back and think through that rationale again. And sometimes you do days like that. And we've all been in situations like that at one time or another in our life where you're just figuratively clinging to the throne of God and it just seems like God's off somewhere uh, taking care of somebody else's problem. He's concerned about the Middle East or the war in Iraq or whatever it might be, but somehow uh, he's not really concerned with what's going on with me right now. And what's really happening during that time is God is teaching us to consistently trust him and to make that conclusion a reality in our own thinking so that we can relax and trust him. So this is what we're doing as we look at these promises, is to break them down and look at, at, the, at the structure. So the promise we're going to look at today is in Isaiah 41.10. Last time we looked at Isaiah 40.31, and I want to just slip back to that because it's the same context. Isaiah 40.31 comes at the end of chapter of the first chapter in the second part of Isaiah. There's two big divisions in Isaiah. Isaiah operates in the 7th and 6th century B.C. And he is foretelling in the first 39 chapters the destruction of the southern kingdom, Judah, and Jerusalem, and the fact that the southern kingdom, the Jews in the southern kingdom, will be militarily defeated and taken out uh, by the Babylonians into captivity. And this took place some uh, 200 years or 150 years after Isaiah died. But in Isaiah chapter 40, he is putting himself in that future position at the end of the captivity. See, Let's put this up here in a chart so you can orient geographically. What we have here is in 586 B.C., which is 6th century. Back in the 7th century B.C., you have Isaiah operating. And he's looking forward to the fact that, first of all, there's going to be the fifth cycle of discipline uh, on Judah in 586 B.C. And then we know from our study in Daniel in 536 B.C., they start to return to the land. In 539 B.C., Babylon is militarily defeated by the Persians under Cyrus. And so there's a major war that breaks out. And all of this is a background to understanding Isaiah chapter 40 and 41. So here you have 
uh, Babylon defeated in 539. Now this period of time, this 70 years from 586 to 536, is known as the Babylonian captivity. Now, Isaiah 1 to 39 prophesies that captivity. In Isaiah 40 through 66, the focus is on what's happening right here at the end of that captivity and how God is going to deliver and rescue the Jews at that particular time. So he is addressing people who are in this captivity. They are, in essence, prisoners and in some cases slaves in Babylon. And at this particular time, they are looking at on the horizon of history and they are seeing this military buildup in the Medes and the Persians and so there is a vast military threat. Their security is threatened. They have no idea what is going to happen. In the ancient world and ancient warfare, if the Persians come in and override Babylon and override uh, many of the small towns and villages and you were living there, then this would be a tremendous threat to you both personally in terms of your own life and health and your family but also a threat economically. What's going to happen? We're going to have a major uh, change of power, major change of authority take place in a few years. It looks like we're going to be defeated, and how's that going to affect my business? How's that going to affect my ability to take care of my family? And so you can see that this is a time, not unlike today, when there can be a tremendous insecurity and fear and anxiety over what may happen historically. And so in the, at the end of the 40th chapter, Isaiah says, But those who wait on the Lord shall exchange their strength. And the context is talking about those in the midst of this turmoil and facing this adversity that wait on the Lord. God is the God of history. Jesus Christ controls history. There is a plan and a purpose. Remember, it's got to be His strength and not our strength, His power and not our power, His procedures and not our procedures. So there's the reminder of the rationale that God is in control. Verse 28, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, Yahweh, emphasizing both His eternality and then Yahweh emphasizing His covenant faithfulness, the creator of the ends of the earth, that means He's more powerful than anything that happens during human history. He neither faints nor is weary, that means He's omnipotent, and His understanding is unsearchable. He knows all of the details and everything that's going to happen, and He is in control of history. Therefore, you can relax, have confidence in the future, that's the idea of wait. We looked at it last time, kava meaning confident expectation. You can relax and wait on the Lord, which entails an exchange of your truth, your faith, I mean your strength for his strength, your power for his power. Now in this same context, just ten verses later, we have another promise that is one that is frequently uh, cited, frequently memorized, and one that is a good one if you are prone to any kind of fear or anxiety. I remember, I think I memorized this when I was probably eight or nine years old, one of the first verses I ever learned. Fear, and I always quote it from the King James Version because that's how I learned it, not in one of the uh, modern versions, which I think lose some of the rhythm and some of the uh, uh, power of the word itself. Fear thou not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. 
I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. So at the beginning, we need to look at some basic observations of the text. First of all, it's in poetry. You should notice that most of prophecy is written in poetry. And if you have a New American Standard or a New International Version or New King James Version, they usually put the text in a poetic format. And in poetry, the Jews rhymed ideas rather than words. We think of poetry mostly as the rhyming of words in English. And in some cases, you have irregular poetry where it's, it's the uh, development of thoughts, and there's, it just has to do with stanza and meter. But in Hebrew, there is a rhyming of ideas, and that's done in a couple of different ways. Sometimes you have synonymous parallelism where you have two lines that say the same thing with slightly different words. And that's what we have in the first two lines of verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. And then we have a synonym for fear. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. And so the second line repeats in slightly different verbiage the first line. And so with the combination of the two lines, you get a a more fully uh, developed picture of what the writer is saying. There's other kinds of parallelism. There's a antonymic parallelism where the second line is the opposite of the first line. You have uh, other types of parallelism that develop different thoughts. But here we see in these first two stanzas the idea and the, the mandate not to be afraid. This is a uh, both both verbs use a cal imperfect of uh, of the verb, but the imperfect is used in an imperatival sense. So this is a command. It is a mandate. We are not to be afraid. Now this is where we go back to understanding the active and passive sense of the faith rest drill. We're told not to do something. What are you not to do? You're not to be afraid. So therefore, you get into a situation in life, and all of a sudden something occurs. It may be personally threatening. It may be threatening to somebody in your family. A tremendous source of worry and fear for parents is their children and things that can happen to their children. And as soon as you find yourself caving into fear or anxiety, then what happens is you want to focus on the situation and not the solution, focus on the problem and not uh, not God. And so there is a command addressed to your volition. You see, fear and anxiety and worry are volitional decisions. They are, you're responsible for that. As soon as you have an imperatival mood in either Greek or Hebrew, that is addressing your responsibility. And God is saying, you're responsible. You're not just afraid because you're afraid. It may be the automatic natural reflex of your sin nature, but you have a volition, and you can choose not to worry. You can choose not to be afraid. You can choose not to be dismayed. So there is a prohibition here for the believer. That's something not to do. As soon as you feel that fear being generated, you have to make a decision that, no, I am not going to operate on that fear. I am going to instead apply some doctrine. So we have two commands. The first is to fear not. And the word fear in the Hebrew is the word yareth. And this word must always be understood in the context. Always understood in the context. 
Yare, Y-A-R-E, and it means, has two senses. One is to show awe or respect. For example, a wife is to fear her husband, and that means to show respect uh, for him and to honor him. The second sense is the idea of anxiety or being afraid, uh, fearful. So those are the two ideas that are present in uh, Yareh. The second word that is rhymed with that is the Hebrew verb shata. The Hebrew word shata looks like this. S S H A T A and this has the idea of as it's translated in the King James to be dismayed it is a synonym for yara now there is a another word that has shown up that is found in some manuscript manuscripts called sha'a and there's a slight difference between the two, and Sha'ah has the idea of looking around at something, how you regard something, how you look at something, and New American Standard editors chose, I think wrongly, uh, that word apparently because it translates the uh, verse in the New American Standard, uh, Fear thou not, for I am with thee, uh, do not look anxiously about you. And that translation is really from another word and I went through my Hebrew text, a couple of different Hebrew texts and I cannot find that that meaning although it seems to be an alternate reading in the passage that for some reason they chose but that's not what's in the in the uh, Masoretic text. So the King James has a superior translation there in the sense of do not be dismayed. Now, the English word dismay, which is a good translation of shata, has the idea of being filled with apprehension or alarm. It goes beyond the simple concept of fear. It can also take it to the next level, which brings in the idea of being filled with depression or discouragement or becoming agitated. Webster's uh, College Dictionary says that dismay means to be deprived of courage, resolution, and initiative through the pressure of a sudden fear or anxiety or great perplexity. It implies that one is disconcerted and at a loss as to how to deal with something. And this is what happens with fear, is we're faced with some circumstance that it's completely outside of our control. And we don't know how that circumstance is going to affect us directly or affect someone we love directly. And so rather than relax and put it in the control of God who can control and is in control of all circumstances, what we do is we think that we can sit back and through a lot of emotion and through a lot of worry and agitation that somehow we can affect uh, circumstances that we have absolutely no control over. That's why fear and anxiety and worry go hand-in-hand with arrogance. We think that somehow by sitting in um, at home, we can worry for hours about the security of the nation and whether or not there may be another terrorist attack, and that somehow all that mental and emotional activity is going to change things. 
You see, we think that somehow if, I, if that we affect it, and we don't. All we've done is get ourselves all worked up and waste a lot of time and get enmeshed in mental attitude sins rather than relaxing and trusting God and pushing ahead. That's the. It destroys initiative. It destroys courage. And it destroys objectivity of thought. So the commands are twofold. First of all, do not be afraid, do not be fearful, do not, which relates to other sins, which we'll see in a minute. And second, do not be dismayed. That is, do not let that go to a higher level of intensity, which will shut down the activity and the thought, the objective thought pattern of your soul. So you have this twofold command. First of our prohibition, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. And each is followed by an explanatory causal clause. An explanatory causal clause. That word for represents a Hebrew preposition key, K-I. It's an independent preposition. It's not the one that's prefixed to, the, to, to a noun. And it indicates the cause for which something is stated. So it tells us why. This is the rationale. We mix our faith with the promise, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed. Why? It's not just because God says so. And that's true, but, but there's a rationale there. And as we grapple with that rationale that undergirds it, we understand the foundation and how that then changes the way we think about the, the, the circumstance around us. And this is indicated by the clause after the four. The rationale for not fearing is that God is with us. The rationale for not being dismayed is that God, He is our God. Now, the one who is speaking here is Yahweh. In chapter 40, it is Isaiah speaking to the people and reminding them of who God is. In chapter 41, starting in verse 1, it is God, Yahweh, the covenant God, the covenant faithful God of Israel, who is addressing the Jews. So he is referring back to who and what he is. Again, the whole idea of not fearing and not being anxious, not caving into mental attitude sins related to fear and worry, is an understanding of the essence of God, who he is and what he is doing in human history, that God is omnipotent, he is all-powerful. God is a God of love. He cares about his people. So even though this is a promise, as is Isaiah 40:31, that he is given to Israel in the midst of a specific historical situation, there are universal principles here that you can take and apply for any believer at any time. Just as Jews were individuals who were faced with a crisis, the solution to that crisis of why not to cave in to fear and worry and anxiety is the character of God. So it can take, you can take that to a, a, a universal level and extract the rationales and apply them even to a church age believer. Which is different from other passages, from some other passages and promises in the Old Testament, which are specifically his, directed to Israel and historically conditioned. And too often what happens is we try to claim some promises in the Old Testament and nothing happens. And it's because we're basically reading God's promise to the next door neighbor. We're reading somebody else's mail. And, you know, unless you want to pay their bills, you're going to get in trouble. Uh, 
And so we have to make sure we understand that it is a principle that it can be universally applied uh, and extracted and applied to church-age believers. And that's true for both the passages, Isaiah 40.31 and Isaiah uh, 41.10. So the mandate is to fear not because God is with us. And we know as church-age believers, God is with us. We are indwelt by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We are adopted into God's royal family. We are members of that royal family. We have been given an incredible array of spiritual assets, and God is doing something with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Jesus says he is with us until the end of the age. Therefore, we can apply this same principle that we should not be afraid because God is intimately involved in our lives. So the first two lines give us the prohibition not to be afraid, not to be dismayed. And then we are given a, a further development in the last part of, of the verse. In those last three lines, each clause is prefaced by the particle af in the Hebrew, which indicates the idea of you're heaping or piling. It's an intensive particle which takes one thought and piles something else on top of it and piles something else on, on, on top of it. it, it it's, it's, you're increasing in your in your momentum. God will strengthen us. Yes, He's going to help us, and even more, He's going to uphold us with the with His righteous right hand or right hand of His righteousness. That is the idea in that kind of construction. So God promises. The first of all, you have the prohibition of the first two stanzas which tells us what not to do that is the active side of the principle and as we do that and relax in his provision then God tells us what he's going to do he strengthens us he helps us and he is the one who is going to uphold us with his righteousness it goes back to his integrity it is his character once again so the rationale that undergirds this whole promise is the rationale of God's character. This is why you have to understand the essence box. Go back to that. But it's not just a matter of, of skipping the, that first step. Some people say, well, why do I have to memorize a promise? See, there's that laziness again. Why do I have to memorize a promise? I just understand the essence box, and I'll just skip right to that. Because the promises give you the specific revealed word of God and the specific promise itself. And God has promised that his word will not return to him empty or void without accomplishing his purpose. He didn't say the principles. He didn't say the policies. He said, my word. There is something important about understanding his word. This is why you have Jesus specifically quoting scripture. He doesn't just allude to abstract principles when Satan is tempting him in the wilderness. He specifically quotes uh, passages of scripture. That sets the pattern. Okay, but what we have to understand the problem of fear a little more before we can go on to uh, expand on this promise. See, this isn't the only place where we have such a promise, and I want to link and connect several together because they, uh, if you memorize several promises all related to the same problem, then as you pull them together, it gives you a greater sense of what God is doing and how to handle the situation. So we have to ask, answer the question, what is fear? What exactly is fear? Let's try to understand this. First of all, fear is an emotion that is caused by the anticipation or awareness of danger. 
It is an emotion. It is almost a physically oriented or an originated thing. It comes out of the sin nature, which of course is housed in the gene structure uh, of the and the DNA structure of the cell. So we something happens and instantly you can almost feel it sometimes. It has a there's a correlated chemical shift that takes place as certain certain uh, enzymes are produced in our bodies when we become afraid. And fear is that emotion that is caused by an anticipation or a sense of danger. In some sense, we feel that we are personally threatened or our children are personally threatened or somebody we care about is threatened. And fear can be related to any and every area of life. It can be related to your job, your career, your family, your relationships. It can be related to your future hopes and dreams. It can be related to, to finances. It can be related to anything, and, and we are, become fearful of just about anything. But what is the root cause of fear? That's the second point. Is that fear itself is a mental attitude sin that is at the very core of all of the emotional sins in the sin nature. The sin nature produces a host of emotional sins. We talk about anger, jealousy, bitterness, vindictiveness. All of these are emotional mental attitude sins, but the very core of all of that is fear. Fear is the first mental attitude sin that is mentioned in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 3, we're told about uh, how Adam and Isha fall into sin when they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right after they eat, we're told in verse 8 that God came walking in the garden. They heard the sound of God, and so they did what? They ran and hid, and they, they because they were naked... They were exposed. They were vulnerable both physically and spiritually. When they heard God, they recognized a spiritual exposure that they were never aware of before. The fallen man is completely exposed and vulnerable before a righteous God who will hold him accountable for his disobedience. So as a result of that, they ran and hid. And then when God confronted them and said, Why are you hiding? Their response was, well, we heard the sound of you in the garden, and we were afraid. So the first thing that comes along, the first mental attitude sin that comes along after they disobeyed God is they are afraid. So you have two things manifested. You have two things manifested. I'm out of stuff on the overhead. You have two things manifested in the fall. First is arrogance. They are absorbed with themselves. They decide they can. They know more about what's going to happen when they eat the fruit than uh, than God does. And the second thing that comes right on the tail of arrogance, that is always linked with arrogance, is fear. And these become the the twin orientations of the sin nature and the soul dominated by the sin nature. One is arrogance, and the other is fear. Why are we afraid? Because we live in a world that we can't control anymore, and it's out of control and in chaos because of sin. So the first sin that is mentioned in Scripture is fear. Now the consequence of fear, third point here, is the consequence of fear is that there is almost an automatic reflex attempt 
to cloak it, to resolve it, to find some sort of solution. When they heard the sound of God walking in the garden, what did they do? They ran and hid because they were afraid, and they tried to cover up their exposed nakedness by making uh, clothes of fig leaves. And this is what happens. Man, at his very core, is afraid. He is existentially fearful. Because he is now a creature that has been cut loose from his creator and he is incapable of making life work at all. He is completely threatened at the very core of his existence. So the mind immediately begins to develop all kinds of rationalizations and attempts to avoid feeling the impact of being this, being this creature that is cut loose from any protection from God. And so man tries to develop all kinds of ways to rationalize that fear, either by saying it's it's just normal, it's natural, there's really not a problem with it, or to say, well, you you have no reason to be fearful, and so just in some sense set it aside, deny it. Oh, it's the result of being culturally conditioned that way. If you hadn't grown up in that fundamentalist conservative Christian home where you were taught all that stuff about the Bible, then you wouldn't be so fearful. So you just have to learn to get rid of all that garbage that... uh, your Christian parents taught you and forget about the Bible and then you can live without fear. So somehow God is always blamed for the fact that man is fearful. But only Christianity gives a solution to fear that honestly recognizes what it is, what its source is, where you can replace fear with courage. Every single human being, remember, is born condemned by Adam's original sin, and therefore from the moment you take your first first breath, you are under control of the sin nature. And this makes two things certain. The orientation of your soul and your child's soul from the instant they're born is arrogance. Arrogance, self-absorption is the natural orientation. And what goes hand in hand with that is the emotional sin a fear. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles to First John. First John gives us the foundation for the solution of, of fear. First John chapter four, verses seventeen and eighteen. And we have studied this in detail when we went through first John, but we need to be reminded of what's happening here. First John four seventeen. Love has been perfected. Actually, that means love has been matured among us by this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. So he starts off in verse 17 talking about love being matured, that we can have boldness. In contrast to that, in verse 18, he says, there is no fear in love. So what's the contrast here? The contrast is not between fear and love. The contrast is between fear and boldness. The boldness has to do with being having love matured in the believer's life. He is bold in the day of judgment. The fear in context here is a fear when brought to accountability before the great or before the judgment seat of Christ. 
And the general principle here is because every human being knows that he's going to be held accountable to God for his life. This is what happened with Adam as soon as he sins. He knows he's going to be held accountable. God comes in the garden. There's accountability walking through the garden. And what's the response? Fear. Fear is ultimately related to the fact that as a rebellious creature, we're going to be held accountable by God. But what handles that, what erases that, is understanding the love of God and having that love of God brought to maturity in the believer through advance in the spiritual life. So that John says in verse 18, there is no fear in love because mature love casts out fear. The basic orientation of the believer's soul is arrogance which is accompanied by emotional sin. As the, er- as the believer is self-dependent and self-absorbed, he's going to be arrogant and he will always be fearful. But when he becomes God-dependent and focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, occupation with Christ, and as he grows in maturity and understands and implements the love of God in his own life, then what happens is that fear is eradicated. It disappears because the orientation is no longer towards self-dependence, but God-dependence. And as you grow and mature, then that mature love replaces that fear and anxiety because the second clause of verse 18 because fear involves torment, he who fears has not been made uh, mature in love. That means that as you grow and mature, you realize, you understand grace, you understand the dynamics of the judgment seat of Christ, and there is no fear or anxiety because you know that God is in, in control. So the ultimate resolution to that core existential fear that we have uh, as unbelievers is through, first of all, regeneration, and secondly, through advance in the spiritual life. Now let's get some other facts on fear. First of all, point one, fear is an emotional sin that lies at the center of a web of other sins. It's not just fear. Fear always comes joined with a number of other mental attitude sins, such as anxiety, worry, dread, uh, agitation, being terrified, and often these accompanying sins develop into anger. If you're worried or fearful for a long enough time, then what often happens is that develops an anger directed at that which produces the fear. And so it shifts shifts gears to anger and resentment. And then if a situation continues long enough that you're now you're angry about this, but you can't do anything about it, you feel completely overwhelmed, and you feel completely at a loss, then that leads in turn to discouragement, and discouragement breeds depression. And now you have a tremendous problem because this interconnection of fear, worry, anxiety leading to anger and discouragement and depression starts to have a physiological impact on an individual, and that has to do with producing different kinds of um, 
uh, hormones and chemicals and other things that, that affect your mental attitude state. And now you have not only a spiritual problem, but that spiritual problem has fed a, and developed a physical problem. And if you continue with that modus operandi for a while, then what you end up with is somebody who is diagnosed as, as a, as any number of different emotional problems. And then the attempt is to, well, let's solve this by getting the chemical balance straight. And now you're going to compound that problem because you're not addressing the solution. You're just addressing the symptom. And in many, many cases, what happens when you get on these mood-altering drugs is they start rewiring uh, the hardware. And science doesn't know enough yet about the brain and how it works. They don't even assume, the, see, the the presupposition that governs all of psychology and all of psychiatry is that man is improvable and, and secular psychology rejects the idea of the sin nature. And we've gone through, in fact, I did a lengthy series in Judges on the problems with psychology and psychotherapy. And when you take any kind of system that's been developed on a presupposition of the improvability of man, that man is not a sinner, then you start trying to add Christianity to that, you just end up with a real mess. And it doesn't start off taking seriously the fact that every problem that man develops in life is a result of spiritually wrong decisions. And if you're not addressing those uh, spiritual issues and the sin problem in terms of behavior, then you will never finish, you will never find complete resolution. And so you have to deal with sin, first of all, by use of 1 John 1 9 to get back in fellowship and the filling of the Holy Spirit, and then the consistent application of the faith rest drill and claiming claiming promises. So we see under the first point that fear is an emotional sin that lies at the center of a web of mental attitude sins, and one thing always seems to generate into something else. Second point, fear is often stated in Scripture as a representative emotional sin. It talks about fear, but it's talking actually about this entire web work of of uh, interrelated mental attitude sins. Fear always destroys the spiritual life of the believer. And if you are afraid, worried, anxious, agitated, terrified, angry, resentment, resentful, uh, discouraged, or depressed, then you are out of fellowship. You are not uh, trusting God. And it's not, you know, there's always this attempt to make everything oversimplistic. And sometimes it may take you, depending on how bad your habit patterns of worry and anxiety are, it may take you weeks, months, years to discipline yourself to think in terms of trusting God. That's the process of spiritual growth. It's not just a matter, and it's often it's represented this way, it's not just a matter of grabbing a promise and throwing it at a problem. Some problems are that way for us. But other issues, and every issue affects different people differently, depending on the area of weakness in your sin nature. But sometimes things just plague us to where it is literally a moment-by-moment struggle to apply uh, and utilize a faith rest drill. But that's how spiritual growth takes place. So the third point, fear and the function of your spiritual life are mutually exclusive. And sometimes from one second to the next, you're in fellowship, then you're out of fellowship, then you're in fellowship, then you're afraid and you're out of fellowship, then you're in fellowship, then you start worrying and you're out of fellowship. And a whole day goes by like that and you think, 
I'm not getting anywhere. Well, you are. Because where would you be if you hadn't been confessing the sin those 500 times that day? See, you're training yourself. It's a drill. It's about as much fun as going to boot camp in the Army and spending all day doing a close-order drill with an M16 or whatever it may be. If you're in some sort of job where you have to know how to take an engine apart and put it back together blindfolded and you have to do that a 100 times every day for six weeks, that's not very much fun either. But when you're done, you've gotten somewhere. And that's why it's called the faith rest drill. It's that constant discipline of going through the process, and eventually you look back and you realize how far you've come spiritually. Fourth point, fear results when we lose focus on our personal eternal destiny and God's plan for our life. That's why we often go to the promise of Isaiah 40:31, which we covered last week, to wait upon the Lord. It focuses on that future destiny that God has for us. Fear results when we lose sight of the fact that God has a plan and a purpose for our life, and He is working that out. And as those Jews in Babylon in 540 B.C., looking at the uh, threat on the horizon of a military assault uh, of the the, uh, Persians uh, found out God controls history. And they were fearful. They didn't know what would happen. They they weren't like us. We know the end of the story. They had no no idea how the Babylonian, I mean, the Persian army would roll over them. Well, we know the story of Daniel uh, chapter 5 when or Daniel 6, when you, there was the handwriting on the wall, and, and uh, 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 Belshazzar had the great orgy, and while they're all having a party in the, in the temple palace, that Cyrus uh, dammed up the Euphrates River, and they came in, and it was almost a victory without a shot being fired. And so there wasn't the horrible devastation and, and, uh, and the people's homes being burned to the ground and, and rape and pillage and all of the other things that often went with warfare in the ancient world. God was in control, and the promise he's giving them is in Isaiah 40, Isaiah 41, and throughout this section. It's not till about chapter 44. He even names Cyrus as his anointed one. So he is telling them that he's in control of history just Relax and trust in Him and trust in His character. So fear results then when we lose focus on our personal eternal destiny and that God is in control of the details of our life. Fifth point, fear in the soul represents emotional arrogance and is a distraction to the spiritual life. It is an emotional uh, arrogance and a distraction. And that leads to the sixth point, which is that fear sees the problem. Fear focuses on the problem. Fear focuses on the adversity, and it completely falls apart. And faith looks at the solution of God's provision. There are five great illustrations of this in history, which I don't have time to go into, but you can look up uh, and be reminded of in Scripture. First of all, Abraham's faith that God would provide a promised seed, even though he was far past the age of conception, and so was Sarah. That there could, he trusted God despite that. Then we see Moses at the Red Sea when he's hemmed in by the, by the uh, Egyptian army pressing his rear and he's got the Red Sea at his front and God nevertheless delivers, restrains the, the Egyptian army and parts the Red Sea. 
David exercised faith rest drill uh, in contrast to the fear of Saul and the entire uh, Jewish army when David went up against Goliath. In Daniel, we have two great examples where we have, first of all, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who trust God and refuse to bow down. See, that's that active sense. What do you do in the faith rest drill? Well, I'm not going to bow down to that idol. When they, You can blow the trumpets and have your orchestra play their favorite tune as often as you want to, Nebuchadnezzar, but we are not going to bow down. We're going to uh, do something. We're not going to do what the uh, pagan uh, authority says to do in terms of worshiping an idol. And the passive side, they were trusting God that even if he destroys us, and even if we're burned up in that fiery furnace, we're still not going to do it. We're going to rest in God. And so they obeyed God rather than man, and they were protected and preserved in the fiery furnace. Now, that didn't happen to everybody. So that's not a normative thing, but God used that in a particular instance to teach something. And then the fifth great example is Daniel at the lion's den. Daniel refused to stop praying. See, there's Daniel doing something again. It's not legalism. Daniel continued to pray uh, many times during the day, overtly and publicly. He walked into the house and opened the curtains and threw the doors open so that he could be seen. The, uh, his enemies didn't have to sneak around and plant bugs and you know some sort of hidden camera somewhere to see if they could catch uh, Daniel bowing his head and praying while he was back in the shower. Daniel just made it clear and obvious to one and all, and he did something. The law said you can't pray or beseech a, uh, uh, any other authority other than the king. Daniel did something. He just kept going home and praying. So he was arrested and thrown into the lion's den. He rested in God, and God uh, sent an angel to close the mouths of the, of the lions. So fear focuses on the problem, and panics and faith looks at the solution and goes forward to spiritual maturity. Seventh point, through the faith rest drill, every believer emphasizes the solution rather than the problem. When you go through the rationale, what that's doing is taking your focus off of the problem and onto the character of God, and that then gives you the correct perspective on the problem. Now, there are some five points on the mechanics of fear that I want to briefly summarize. Always keep this in mind, or rather four points. First of all, the more things you surrender to fear, the more things you fear. Fear increases in your life. The more things you surrender to fear, the more things you fear. Today you worry about one thing, tomorrow you'll worry about two things, the next day you'll start worrying about three things, and it has an accumulative power that just shuts down your ability to go forward. Second, the more the extent to which you surrender to fear, the greater your capacity for fear. The extent to which you surrender to fear, the greater your capacity for fear. So the more you worry, the more you're fearful, the more you increase your capacity to fear. And as you discipline yourself in the reverse, you shut down that capacity to worry and that capacity for fear. Third, the greater your capacity for fear, the more you increase the power of fear and anxiety in your life. And then fourth, the more you increase the power of fear in your life, the greater your failure to execute the spiritual life 
for the church age believer. So Isaiah 40:31 gives us the principle, uh, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the, my righteous right hand. That is an appeal to the character and integrity of God. So as you think through the rationale, you come to the conclusion, well, I shouldn't be afraid. I shouldn't be fearful. And you know when you've truly appropriated that conclusion, when you quit worrying about it. You just relax. It's not an issue. It's not controlling your thinking anymore. You don't even think about it. Some parallel promises that you should pay attention to. Psalm 55.22 states, Cast your burden on the Lord, and He shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. The verb to cast your burden on the Lord is the verb shalak, which means to throw, to hurl a spear, to fling something, to cast something. It means just to take that problem and throw it at God. It's not just that you're going to roll your burdens on the Lord. I mean, you just heave this thing at Him. You throw, sling it at Him. And that is a very active concept to just get rid of it. It's not yours. It's his uh, to worry about. The word shalak is used primarily in Scripture of an active throwing or casting, and it's used uh, in a figurative sense there in Psalm 55, 22. And the promise is that he won't allow the righteous to be shaken, and that's the Hebrew word mot, which means to be ultimately destroyed. This doesn't mean that that something bad won't happen. It doesn't mean that you may be worried about the fact that if you uh, do right, that there may not be a judicial penalty. And, for example, if you're a believer in the Soviet Union, you teach a Bible class in the former Soviet Union, if you taught a Bible class, you wouldn't be thrown in prison. Sure you wouldn't. You'd be tortured and all kinds of other things would happen. But ultimately, you wouldn't lose salvation. Ultimately, you're protected by God, and God has a plan and purpose and takes care of you. So not to be moved or not to be shaken doesn't mean that the actual consequences of your fear won't take place. But they won't be destructive to you in an ultimate sense. God is in control, and he may have a plan and purpose why you should go through certain areas of physical adversity or suffering. And then connect this to 1 Peter 5, 7, where we are to cast our care upon him because he cares for us. Once again, it comes back to the rationale of his character. He cares for us. He has, uh, we, we are in the royal family of God. He takes care of us. We'll come back next time. We'll spend some more time on 1 Peter 5, 7 and thinking through the rationale there and then link it to another favorite passage and promise in Philippians chapter 4 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that of your character and the fact that we are prone to fear, worry, anxiety. We are prone to try to uh, take control of situations in life, thinking that somehow our, our emotional state uh, can somehow control circumstances. Rather than relaxing in your power and your provision, trusting in you, doing what you say to do, where we can experience the blessings that you have for us in our spiritual growth. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and therefore there is no hope, there is no salvation that's possible based on human merit. Scripture states that all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. We can do nothing to merit God's favor. The only thing that God is impressed with is 
perfect righteousness. The only way we can receive perfect righteousness is to get it from someone else. It must be given to us. And the scripture says that if we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we trust in his uh, substitutionary death on the cross, then at that instant God the Father imputes to us or gives us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So on the basis of that imputation, we are declared just and we are given eternal life. So the issue is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, trusting in him and him alone for our salvation and in his righteousness and not our righteousness for our relationship with God. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with all that we study today, that we might continue to uh, apply the faith rest drill and apply it more diligently in every area of our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.